0: Heavenly Father, it is a, um, a very regular gift, but an absolutely incredible gift that you would speak to us. As we gather as your people, or we, we gather um, for those in the room that don't yet know you, and they're here through whatever providence that you've orchestrated, or they're here asking questions, God, this moment of our service is, is one of the highlights when we simply get to hear from you in your word. It's a time where we most directly hear from you. So I ask that as we hear from your word, would you be be loud? Would your word cut through all of the other competing messages that we are inundated with every week? Might it come with clarity? Might it come with authority? Today's text is is a liberation sort of text that every single soul in this room, I imagine, so desperately needs. Help us hear you. Holy Spirit, help us hear what God has for us. Of all things, what each and every person in this room needs most is that we would leave this place more impressed with what Christ Jesus has done. So would you make him loud in this sermon? Would you make him loud in our conversations, loud during communion, loud in our songs, and loud throughout this week until we gather back together as your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Charles Spurgeon said this of Psalm 131. He said, it's one of the, the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. It's only three verses. Take about 20 seconds to actually read, if you actually read it slowly. Why does it take a lifetime to learn? give you a reason. It tells us something that feels really culturally strange, perhaps even offensive. Here it is. You can't do everything. You can't be anything. You can't be everything for everyone, no matter how hard you try. And if you try, you will never find rest. This idea of how finite we are as human beings. Um, I, I was really thinking about this a lot from a book from Kelly Capick, who this sermon, uh, I took his title, You're Only Human. And the subtitle is like the surprisingly good news of our limits. But in this book, he lays out this story of the average high school student in America. And I was really convicted by it. I haven't done anything in my family to change it, but I was convicted, sort of. The average high school student leaves their house at 7.30 a.m. or so. They go to school until 3.30 or so, and then they do extracurricular activities. They go to sports, or they go to music, or they go to theater until 5 or 6 or perhaps 7. They race home, they shower quickly, they eat, and do homework till 10, or they head out of their houses to go do travel sports or private lessons or whatever else it is, then wash, rinse, repeat every single day until they collapse. And that's fine for people that that works for as they push for AP classes and community service and going for scholarships and all these different things, but there's so much pressure heaped upon the average person that when they can't seem to keep up, they just feel like it's some moral failure in them. A lot of us feel this pressure. We're so inundated with finely curated images of like scratch-baked meals by attractive spouses that are best friends, eaten by the most wonderful, well-behaved, athletic, groomed children sitting around an incredible table in a home that the decor could be on any magazine with a house on the lake and a boat house and ski do's and it's all on a Tuesday night and you just came home from your careers. I mean, it's like that is, that's the, the world that we swim in. You can have it all. You can. You can have it all. You can have a great spouse, great kids, great grades, great accomplishments. You can take over the world and six-pack abs. And it is killing us. It's killing us. Scott Sauls, in his sermon on Psalm 131 on this psalm, he quotes from what is one of the best-selling, marketed as a Christian book, in the last few years, and I imagine many of you have read this, and you probably enjoyed it, and there's probably a lot in it that's uh, commendable. But this author says this, the real you is destined for something more, your version of more. This is who you were made to be, and the first step to making that vision a reality is stop apologizing for having the dream in the first place. It's now, I love this next line. I think it's a great line. It's time to become who you were made to be. But who are you made to be? The author goes on and says this, to believe that you are capable to become whatever kind of person you want to be. You've got to decide right now that you can be whatever you want to be and achieve whatever you want to achieve. And if we're gracious and winsome, oh, there's probably so much in that that's meant in the right ways, it gets nuanced and worked out. But the reality is is you cannot be whatever you want to be. That's a cultural lie. Psalm 131 is good news for the overwhelmed and the tired and the exhausted, and the I can't seem to measure up to everyone else's expectations. It offers freedom and permission to be what you actually are human with limits. Let me summarize where we're going. You are not God, God is not you. And that is unbelievably greatness. You're not God. God is not you. And that is unbelievably greatness. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Psalm 131. This is God's holy, wonderful, flawless, authoritative, comforting word. Oh Lord, my... Heart, it's not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Feel free to grab a seat. You ever think about what the difference between you and God is? You even say, what's like a really big difference? What's the greatest difference? What's the difference between God and you? I love Anne Lamott's response. The difference between you and God is God doesn't think he's you. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> He knows it. We seem to forget it. (laughs) You know, that be anything, you can do anything, it's everywhere, and social media has really not helped. This has always been a problem. This was written 3,000 years ago. It's always been a problem, but it's really unhelpful. I read a stat recently, I think it's between 45 to 50% of the world's population is on at least one or more social media platforms. This is billions and billions of people that are swimming in in a world that is dominated by influencers influencers are the, are the new celebrities of our world. And there's influencers for everything, for cooking, for lifestyle, for parenting, for sports, for, for business, people that, that have risen up in some viral way. That should just cue us in, viral. That is, it should just cue us in to be aware. But it's spread, spreading, spread, and we're, we're consuming it at, 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 at remarkable rates. Came across an article, and it was about a guy named Andrew Tate you heard about Andrew Tate? You don't have to raise your hand. Some of you, you're like, if you had, you're like, where are you going with this? I'd never heard of Andrew Tate. And so I was like, he can't be a big deal. But then the author, like three or four sentences into the article says, parents, just because you haven't heard of Andrew Tate doesn't mean he's not a big deal. I bet your kids have heard of him. So I went and asked my kids and they have heard of him. He's a mega influencer, mega influencer. Now, if you go and you try to find him now, I believe, on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or any of these things, you actually, he's been canceled from all of them, but he has millions of followers and billions, billions of of retweets. He's got tons and tons of followers, and and his thinking is everywhere. He runs a university called Hustlers University, where people subscribe, pay money so that they can get his wisdom and advice so that their lives can be better. Let me give you a quote from him. I read some of his quotes. I found one that I still had to modify to be able to read it here today. This is Andrew Tate. I have everything every man has ever dreamed of. I got a big mansion. I got supercars. I can live anywhere I want. I got unlimited women. I go where I want. I do anything I want all the time. So I'm an amazing role model. That's like the anti-Psalm 131. (laughs) I'm the man. Look at me. Everybody look at me and become what I am. And it's sad. And this is someone being the image of God that's soul, I guarantee, is not at rest. That's the world we live in. But this psalm offers a different type of role model. We know a lot about the author. The author is King David. King David was the man. Youngest of eight, courageous as a little boy out guarding the, 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 the flock, killing lions and bears. And while the, the people of God are so afraid at the attack of the Canaanite army and this this giant warrior named Goliath, David says, Oh, I'll go. I'll fight him. God's strong. And he goes down to the river and he grabs a few stones and he goes at this giant with a slingshot. Oh, he's so courageous, and he was handsome. Zac Efron had nothing on David. I just read about him the other day too. I'm, I'm trying to get cultural with y'all. College (laughs) students are coming back. Can you dig it now? Just that's like old school, man. All right, all right. Strack with me. No laughing in church. But he was, he was ruddy and handsome. He's ruddy and handsome. Everyone thought so. He's a talented musician. Like in today's terms, he would be multi-multi-platinum. He's written the best bestsellers ever in the history of the world. 73 of the Psalms are songs that he wrote, that God's people have been singing for 3,000 years. He was so artistic, so incredible. He was a military strategist, brilliant, and he had really deep friendships. Now, he did a lot of nasty stuff too, but his pedigree... His background, he is the ultimate rakes to riches story. He became king as a little shepherd boy. And yet he says this, I'm low. I've made myself small like a child. And I finally found rest. How many of us in this room actually know that kind of soul rest? That ability to turn off the busyness of our brains and the worry of our hearts, to just sleep through the night. Oh my goodness, last night I tossed and I turned and to- I, oh. And it's way more often than it is rare. David Pallison, in his article on Psalm 131, he asked this question What makes us noisy inside? What makes us. Like grumble, and claw, and grind, and rage, and fret, and worry, and make us anxious. And Powelson would suggest it comes from believing the opposite of what David believed. That we actually can do everything. The haughty eyes, if you were going to flip that, what it means to have, like, or to have a lifted up, to, my heart's not lifted up, it means pride, it means that I think I deserve better, it means that I, I've done better, it means I, I, look how capable I am, or this, this phrase to have haughty eyes means to, we would say it's like to look down your nose at people. Say, oh, I can accomplish more than that, look at those people, look how much they've wasted, look how they've squandered, look at who I am. Or Occupied with things too great and too wonderful. It's not that we're not to be occupied with anything, but we often go beyond what we're called to be occupied with, things too wonderful and too great for me. We could, we could say something like like, something like like Tate maybe would say, like, oh, I can do everything. It's this unchecked ambition. I can control the uncontrollable. Let me give you a clarification from Pallison before we go on. I think this is helpful to hear at this moment. Pallison says this Get a clear picture of what Psalm 131 is not. It does not portray blissful, unruffled detachment, a meditative state of higher consciousness. It's not stoic indifference. It's not becoming philosophical about life. It's not about having an easygoing personality or having low expectations so you're easy to please. It's not retreat from the troubles of life and the commotion of other people. It's not retirement to a life of ease and wealth. The quiet of having nothing to do and no worries. It's not the pleasant fatigue that follows a hard day's work or a hard workout. It's not the quieting of inner noise that a glass of wine produces. After all, David was a kingdom builder in real life, real time. He expected and achieved huge things in the midst of commotion and trouble. He experienced pressure, joy, heartache, outrage, affection, courage. So Psalm 131's inner quiet comes, and this is important, in the midst of actions, relationships, and problems. This isn't saying you're not called to anything. This isn't saying you're not called to engage. It's not saying, okay, the the way towards peace and tranquility is somehow get off on your own, be around, remove all of the static, all of the difficulties, all the struggles. The, The beauty of this is it's saying you can actually have calm and peace in the midst of them in the midst of your careers, in the midst of your relationships, in the midst of your studies, in the midst of competition, in the midst of parenting. What makes the difference to be able to do it in the midst of all of these things? You're not God. We're not God. We're human. Knowing you're human. With God-designed, God-ordained, God-celebrated god designed god ordained god celebrated limits. He could have built us different. He chose to build us the way he did. He's not ashamed of your limits. He's the master architect, the master creator. He designed them. Zach Eswine, in his book, The Imperfect Pastor, And subtitle, I'll give you a subtitle because it's so good, Discovering Joy in Our Limitations Through a Daily Apprenticeship with Jesus. And here he's he's writing to pastors primarily, but I think the wisdom of this is beautiful. Mark this down, okay? You and I were never meant to repent for not being everywhere for everybody and all at once. You and I were meant to repent because we've tried to be. You don't have to feel bad that you're not omnipresent. You're not. You don't have to feel bad that you don't have all the answers. Well, We can know things. We can't know everything. Oh, it's complicated and hard and difficult. You don't need to feel badly for that. What he is saying is, no, what we need to do is repent where we try to godify ourselves. We can't solve every problem. We can't fix every problem. Parents, we can't control our kids' future no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we pray. We can influence. We can't guarantee their safety. We can't make them Christians. You cannot exercise yourself into perpetual health no matter how disciplined you are. None of us will ever achieve enough to finally make ourselves like we've, we're, we're good enough. We cannot meet every expectation. There's a lot we can do. And there's a lot, probably a lot more we can't do. You're not God. That's the first half of finding rest. The other half is this, God is not you. The Bible says that we're made in the image of God. And there's some attributes of God that we do not share with him. They're called incommunicable attributes, like his eternality. He's always existed. We don't share that with him. But then there's a bunch of attributes of God that we actually do share. Things like we can be loving and merciful and gracious and forgiving. Like we can actually know things. God knows all things. We can do things. God is all-powerful. We can be present in places and with people. God alone is present with all, all the time. Being human is, is wonderful. Oh, I want you to hear that. Go read Kelly Capek's book, You're Only Human. It is beautiful. Being human is wonderful. Trying to be God as a human is soul-crushing. We weren't built for it. David knew that. David knew that. And and as he writes this song, he says, oh, I can do things. I just can't do everything. So I'm going to get low and I'm going to get small like a child. We need both. We need to know who we are and we need to know who God is. I love how Jen Wilkins says it in her book, None Like Him. Knowing who God is matters to us. It changes not only the way we think about him, but the way we think about ourselves. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self always go hand in hand. Tim Chester, in his book, um, You Can Change, uh, I think it was published in like twenty. Maybe, yeah, 2013, 20, a great book. I hadn't read it in a while, and was thinking about it again. Really helpful book, just encouraging. You actually can change. You're not stuck. I mean, it's a really helpful, Christ-centered, grace-centered book. But in that book, he lays out um, this thing called the four Gs of God. And, and what I'm hoping to do with this is to give you a handle. When you think about who you are, okay, you're not God, and then God is not you. Here's, here's a way that you can think of God that you can put in your back pocket and try to pull out regularly in your lives, this kind of four, four G way of understanding who God is. And Chester, one of his insights is he suggests that all of our sin or negative emotions, and if we brought this text in, all of our restlessness, all of our unbridled ambition is, is sleepless nights, all those things. It's a failure to believe one of the truths or more of who God is at a functional level. Like, what we actually believe when we really evaluate what we believe. I'm not saying what we would say, not our doctrine and the songs we sing. I'm saying what we actually believe on the street in the moment. This is what he says about the 40. He says, God is great, he's glorious, he's gracious, and he's good. God is great, he's glorious, he's gracious, he's good. God is great. There is nothing too great for him. We could flip this psalm around. David's like, oh, there are things too complicated for me. There is nothing too complicated for God. You know, I think of like Romans 11, 30, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? Who has ever given a gift to God that God should repay him? But from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We need that God. We need that God. Oh, he is great unstoppable. He's glorious. There's nothing too marvelous. He's gracious. Take this psalm. He's like a, it's a rare way of tying God in in our relationship when we go to a more maternal picture. It's only a few times in the Bible this happens, but I think it's really this nurturing, tender, fierce, compassionate, protective. Child had done nothing but was fed and cared for. Oh, he's gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. He withholds what we do. And he's good. His ways are good. His promises are good. His plan is good. I love the last little phrase here in, in, uh, in verse 3. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, both from now until forever. That Like, well, what are we hoping in? And I love that it's generic because the idea is it's whatever it is. Whatever promise he's given, you can hope that that will come true. One day. Whatever it is. And that gets into the particulars of our lives, but this general banner of, oh, what do I need? Well, I just need, I I need to trust. I need hope in him. I need to trust, because he's the one that can do it. God is great and glorious and gracious and good. We're not God. God is not us. And that is unbelievably good news. Those twin truths, they do so much. I'm going to give you a few things that they do. One of the things they do is they can give us a calm life. That's the picture in this text. Like a wean child with its mother. like a wean child is my soul within me." That image, it's not critiquing the need for a, a baby to, to nurse and to eat. That was God's good design. But it's saying that it's this picture of, and as a, as a parent of four I've seen this, with others I've seen this, but it's this, this, this picture of like this incessant need when, when this baby goes, if they're hungry and they're in their mother's arms and they root around and they fuss and they cry and if their demands aren't met right away, they just get louder and they grasp and they, they claw and they're, they're, they're difficult to, to, to calm down. But a weaned child ends up with a history of provision. Once a child's been weaned, there's been a, been a, been a time where, where, where they've been cared for and nurtured and provided. And so now, they, instead of being in their mom's arms for, for what they are demanding, they're just in their mom's arms because of what they receive in comfort. They don't need anything other than that. You know, for us, as we, we grow up, you know, our, our kind of like rooting around and clawing, it, it can look like anxiety and anger and brashness and worry and over-planning are working or overworking, no. But as we realize that we're not God and God's not us, but that God has us, but that God has us, that God has provided for us, that God has come through for us, that God is available to us, our souls can start to settle down. There is a lot that's too hard for us. There is a lot that is too complicated for us. And to be able to, to, calm, we, to, to be calm, we need to know that someone else is in charge. Like, we don't need to hold everything. We can't. But we need to know that someone else is. Like, we can't just be like, okay, it's too hard for me. Parenting's too hard for me. Oh, well. That's not going to create calm. It creates anxiety. But to know that someone who it's not too complicated for, they have it, I can take my hands off. I asked my wife, I said, Hey, honey, I go, is there anything that is like really important to you that really matters, but that you never worry about because someone else is taking care of it? And it was a very sweet response. She goes, Yeah, our retirement, because I know you got it. And then I was like, That's <laughs> like the, the blind trusting the slightly less blind on that one. So don't tell her. <laughs> Don't tell her I don't got it, but, but wasn't that sweet? <laughs> God's got it. God's got it. Let me bring these four G's back in. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I don't need others' approval. Isn't that what we're doing? We're God. Look at my trophy. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Oh, everybody, look, 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 look. God's glorious. Whose whose opinion would you rather have? God is gracious. So I don't need to prove myself. He's God didn't say, "Hey, give me your resume and I'll decide if I let you in or not." He's gracious. He's not hard to please. God is good. I don't need to look elsewhere. He's going to provide everything that my soul most truly longs for. So we can have this calm life. So we realize that we're not God and he's not us, but he has us. But it's a learned life. I want you to get this. And this will be a little bit of a workshop moment here. Because I want to try to take this from this moment and, and by, the, by the grace of God and by his spirit, press it into us. What do we, how do we take this? What do we do with this? Um, verse 2 is really important. David says this, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like, I've been active in applying this truth. It didn't come naturally to me. Being still and trusting the Lord, it wasn't something that just automatically happened. David is saying, like, I I had to learn it. And then verse three is actually an invitation to the rest of God's people to come and learn it too. See, verses one and two are his auto, it's kind of like a spiritual autobiography. He's saying, this, I'm letting you in on the interior, my interior world and my life. And now verse three is saying, now you can do it too. To get this, is, it, it takes learning. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, he says, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals and the first job of each morning the first job or the first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice taking that other point of view letting that other larger stronger quieter life come flowing in and then so on all day Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings coming in out of the wind. He's saying, oh, we wake up and all the expectations. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm, like I told you, last night, I was up and down and up and down and up and down. You get out of bed and it's like this, this just all the things that need to get done, all the things that I'm worried about, everything. He's saying that the, the, the challenge and the trick is to let something stronger push all of those away. Put them in the right place. Let me give you four questions to apply this text, and we'll kind of link these in with Chester's 4Gs here at some point. I don't know who this came from originally. When Chester's book came out, you can change. It kind of had like a moment, at least amongst the circles I was in, and so everybody started doing trainings from and different things. So I don't know who came up with these questions. They're pretty generic. Someone did. I don't know who did originally, but I wanted to credit the anonymous force out there somewhere. Um, Four questions. Who is God? What has God done? Who am I? What do I do? Pallison, in his article, he kind of reverses the translation. So if you take verses 2 and 3, if you didn't get that, what do we have? And we probably can relate to it. But he's like, I'm noisy and restless inside. I'm restless with my demands and my worries. I keep looking for someone, something, anyone, anything to provide hope, but I can't seem to find it. Now, for me, what makes me most noisy I've already alluded to it. It's my kids. How are they? Where are they going? What's going to happen to them? What type of people will they be? Will they be safe? It makes me really noisy. So let me use this as an example to walk through these four questions. Um, The first thing, though, that we have to realize if you're noisy inside, so I would call it, let's say, I'm anxious. And we could nuance this lots of ways in in, in a world that that there's calamities and challenges and struggles and chemicals and all sorts of things, anxiety. We're not putting in the category. I'm not saying, let's talk about a sin. Just talk about something that we don't have to live with, that God wants to free us more and more from. But I get anxious. I'm anxious. The first thing to realize is that that feeling is the fruit, not the root. It's coming from somewhere and where it's coming from is i am believing or disbelieving something about myself and god simultaneously that's what's happening in that moment so let me go through the questions let's start with me what do i do cuz i'm feeling anxious about my kids the answer is i'm anxious i'm scouring books and articles and blog posts and podcasts to try to like dial up my ability as a parent i struggle to sleep I catastrophize. Does anyone else here do that? Like I don't know if find my phone, like following people that you is helpful or not. I just pull up my phone. Okay, my daughter's in Pullman now. She's going to college. I just like, where is she? What dorm is she in? Why is she in that dorm? Why, why didn't she? why is she in the food hall right now? I thought she had class right now. I know what it is, she's dead. <laughs> anyone else? <laughs> like the average week for me is Emma, how are you doing? Wait a couple days. Emma, how's it going? You know, I don't hear back. By, like, Saturday, it's like, are you alive? Don't hear anything Sunday morning. I'm calling the police right now. Hey, Dad, I'm fine. And then we just start that over again every single week. But in the middle of it, I'm just, I'm stressed out. They're late getting home from, you know, the basketball game they went to. I know what it is. They're on the side of the road in a ditch somewhere. That's, that's exactly what's happened. How about overreacting? That's why I overreact. You got a B plus, well, good luck with life now, buddy. Dan, I'm only in eighth grade. Nope, your life's ruined. <laughs> it's ruined, it's done. It's totally like, well, okay, who are you with? What are your friends like? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't care. Oh, goodness, care. Like, don't be in the ditch of like, yeah, whatever. But who are their friends? Who are they with in this overly concerned worry? Okay, what do I do? That's what I do. I know you don't, but I do. Who am I? Who am I? In other words, what am I believing about myself that is driving my anxiety? My kids' future is ultimately all on me. It's on me. I have to parent perfect so my kids turn out perfect. If I do it well enough, they will grow up and be happy and successful. Who am I? I'm, I'm such a compelling force in the life of my kids. I'm seeing this is very flawed, just to be clear. I mean, in quotes, this portion, gee, that pastor has a high esteem of himself. No, I, I, but functionally, like at the street level, what I believe is that I have the ability to be such an influence in my kids' life that if I do it right, they'll turn out right. And if I screw up and they turn out wrong, it's because I messed up. What has God done? What am I believing about what God has or hasn't done that makes me think it's all on me? Well, looking back, it doesn't seem like God's always protected my kids. It seems like there's things that have happened that are really sad and really hard and really scary, and it seems like, where was he? There's times he didn't show up, or I didn't think he did, and I pleaded with him too. So then I go to, Who is God? based on this kind of line, skewed line of thinking? Well, either God doesn't have the power to actually do the things that I'm asking him to do, or God doesn't care enough. So again, it's on me. But that's not where we have to stay. And that's the beauty of the word of the Lord, and that's the beauty of the psalm, and that's the beauty of who he is, that he is great. And he is glorious, and he is gracious, and he is good. See, I can, I can flip those questions. And I would encourage you, like the exercise I just did, I literally, I just journaled these out. I said, when I'm feeling this way, who, you know, what am I doing right now? Who am I? What did God do or not do? Who is he? And I can, I can get this stuff out. I can get the, the, the skewed thinking out where I've gone sideways. But then I can reverse the questions, and I can lead myself back through these questions, but I can start with God. Who is God? Oh, he is great. He has all the strength. Oh, he is glorious. He is, He's gracious. He's good. What has he done? You know, in other words, how can I trust that he is great and glorious and gracious and good and there is no grander or greater place to go than the gospel of Jesus Christ? That he has shown his kindness and his affections as Christ came to be born as a baby and to live the life we were meant to live and then go to a cross where he suffered in the place of all those that would trust in him. Oh goodness, whatever's happening in my life, it can't be because I've failed somehow. Christ loved me when I was rebelling from him. When I was running from him. It can't be because he's punishing me because I keep screwing up. Whatever's going on in this moment. And then Christ goes to the, the tomb, and then he resurrects, triumphing over Satan, sin, and death, and everything broken that causes worry and anxiety. Oh, I can trust that he is good and his plan is right. Who am I? Well, in Christ, I'm forgiven. I'll, I'll include all of us. Those, those in this room that trust Christ, we're forgiven. Friends, you're accepted. You don't have to prove anything. God's not waiting for you to win a first place medal. We're adopted. You have a father that's never going to stiff arm you. If I can use this text, you have an open lap you can climb up in when you're feeling nervous. You're empowered. The Bible says that you're actually like in Christ. You're, you're given new capacities and abilities. You, you can engage. You have things that you can, you, you have obstacles you can confront. You have plans you can construct and act upon. You're being changed. The Bible uses the, the language of sanctification. You're being changed. You're growing. You're maturing. You have this promise that one day you will be glorified. You'll finally be the type of people that God has always Created, declared, set Christ to be, that's what you. That's what you. That's what you are. So what do I do? What do I do with this son? You know what? I'm gonna, with my kids, we'll put it back on with my kids. I'm going to do my best, and then I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> Heard that from a guy named Larry Osborne. It's been like the best advice. Do your best then take a nap. And I can, because there's a God who doesn't sleep. And there's a God that always comes through. Even when it doesn't look, oh, he's got a, oh, I'll go, I'll move on. It's gotta be a practice life. So we have this calm life, practice life, and then I'll end with one last point. It's a privileged life. A privileged life. When I was a kid, um, I loved the show Silver Spoons. It's like one of my favorite shows ever. Um, it's about this kid named Ricky. And Ricky, when he was like 10 or so, he uh, realizes he has a dad. So his dad had been married like 10 years earlier, was married for one week, and and during this one week, Ricky was conceived, and and then the dad kind of took off somehow. They split up. I don't remember the backstory on it. It doesn't matter to me as an eight-year-old or whatever I was watching this show, could care less, because here's what was so great about Silver Spoons, is Ricky's dad that he hadn't known for 10 years, he was like a multi-multi-millionaire. And Ricky's coming to live in this massive mansion, and I remember the scene, like I, the scene where like Ricky, he's like riding on a rail, a train. He's got like a railroad track through like the living room, and and it's just like I'm watching this kid ride through this thing. His bedroom was like the coolest bedroom ever, and I just remember watching this, so jealous. I'm like, dude, this kid is so lucky. He, I didn't realize like, well, he'd been estranged from his dad for ten years. That's kind of sad and all that stuff. I didn't care. He just had all the coolest toys. He had it all. I was so jealous. We have more. We have more. If you're in Christ, you have more. Came across a line from a guy named Thomas Henzel. He said this, we often live below our privileges. We have more. We have a God who is great and glorious and gracious and good. We have a Father in heaven. We have a high priest who ever lives to intercede, who isn't crushing us, but inviting us to, to his easy yoke. We have a cross that, that forgives us. We have a tomb that is empty, declaring that death will not hold us. We have more. We have a king that's returning to bring a new creation. We have more. Friends, let's stop living below our privileges. We're human by God's design, but we're his. Think about what you have if you have Jesus. Am I forgiven? Yes. What sort of future will I have? Amazing. But I'm prone to wander. What if I let go? God won't let go of you. But things are really hard right now. The Father sees. He cares. He knows. He won't waste it. And one day, he'll wipe away every tear. But I don't understand what to do. It's okay. God does but I'm so worried about the future. God holds the future and he holds you. After all, he's great and he's glorious and he's gracious and he's good and you're his. Let's pray. Father, might you take the truth of this text and the truth of who you are for us in King Jesus. And even in this moment, would you settle our souls? Our inboxes don't need our attention right now. Our likes and our followers and the posts we need, they they don't need our attention right now. Our retirement accounts do not need our attention right now. Our homework does not need our attention right now. Our upcoming games do not need our attention right now. Even the relational conflicts that we feel right that we're experiencing, they don't need our attention right now. Settle our souls remind us of the glorious truth that we are human, wonderfully human, and that you are a wonderful God, and that because of Jesus, we're yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond um, as we do every single week as a church, and we really do see this time as such an important time to, to allow the truth of who God is and what his word has said, to, to go deeper into our hearts. And so you don't need to feel rushed here. We're gonna, we'll do a few songs together. The band will play. And, and you can sit here until you're ready to go and receive communion. There's four stations set up. There's some single-serve ones in the back. And there's um, wine and bread on this side and juice and bread on this side. Um, and uh, as you go, I, I guess my encouragement to you is that you let the truth of what we've talked about become real, that that God is great, that he's done this, that he's accomplished what you can't do, that he's glorious, that as he looks at you in Christ, he says, you are my beloved, that that would be enough, and that he's gracious. Communion is this weekly opportunity to turn from our sin and turn from our running and repent of our trying to be God. And to come back and know we come with empty hands, not with promises and pledges of how we'll do, but just empty to receive all what Christ has done. And that he's good. Even in the most broken situations, he can bring out good. That's what he did with the cross. And he can do it in your life. And as we do this, we're declaring the reality of what Christ has done until he comes back. And so I pray that you wouldn't rush through this. Christ has done it all. Christ has done it all. In Christ, every hope, every promise will find its fulfillment because of Christ. And let us sing to our Lord, let's worship him. Go to this table as you feel led.